Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Art and New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, and my name is Valerie St. Rossi. Today, I'm very pleased to be speaking with Helen Zucheb, author with her father, Ilya, of Stories My Father Told Me. This was published by Kuhn Press in 2020. Helen, welcome to New Book Network. Thank you. I'm very, very honored to be here speaking with you and your audience about my treasured book with my father. This book is about two different journeys. Your journey took you to discover relatives and places you had not known. Your father's journey was to return in his memory to those relatives and places now long gone. Please tell us how this book came about. Wow, I I love that observation that you just made. Um, Well, the book the book came about um, in, in several different ways, I think. Um, I don't think initially I had intended it to be a book, but after we had our first exhibition, and I think I had 14 of my father's stories, which I then painted, uh, people began asking me, did I have a book? And I didn't, but then it became like a little seed in my brain that I couldn't let go of. And I decided that that is something that I really would like to pursue. And thanks to Kuhn Press, um, I, I was able to have a real true dream come to fruition. I mean, it doesn't happen very often, but for me, it was, it was a dream when I handed my father his book, his stories, and my paintings. It was really a moment that I'll never, never forget, very emotional. But how it came about um, was, you know, the word in Arabic is hakawati, and that means storyteller. And the hakawati is an esteemed figure Um, throughout the Arab world. And um, the idea of storytelling and passing along another form of education to the village, to the community, to the immediate family, it's generally an elder, which my father certainly is. He's the patriarch of our family. And he he told us stories, my brother and my two sisters and I, our whole lives. 
So it didn't just come about like last year or whatever. These stories we've heard many times over and over throughout our lives. And it culminated um, in this idea of capturing it, him writing them down because it's an oral tradition. As you know, Valerie, it's a, um, a, a word, it's spoken word and um, it, it's not written down. And so what ended up happening, and this was after the incredibly tragic events of 9-11, I live here in Washington and we were in the middle of all that. And um, a quite strong anti-Arab, anti-Arab American sentiment was pervasive in the news. And what ended up happening was I was invited to do an exhibition. Uh, and all of a sudden talking with a director, I had this idea to paint my father's stories and his immigration story the larger story coming to America, ultimately from Damascus, Syria, and Lebanon. And she loved the idea. And then, then became the task for me was to ask my father to actually write down his stories, which he had never done before. And he flat out refused. He said, no. And he turned around and he turned his back on me <laughs> and walked out of the room and left me standing there with my mom. And I, you know, I didn't know what to do. I had already said yes to the exhibition. I was counting on this. So I, I returned back to my studio and they invited me back again, my parents and my mother had spoken with my father and encouraged him to accept my invitation to write down his stories so I could paint them. He did. It was very, um, it was like pulling teeth for him because he felt that they were private. They were family stories and they were not for the wider public consumption. And, uh, you know, and he felt that in a way I was being a little bit disrespectful, which I wasn't. I was actually trying to honor him and honor his memories and honor this other form of education, you know? So with that, he wrote down the stories for me and I subsequently painted them. And periodically from time to time, and you may ask me about that a little bit later, we would get new stories or something would jog his memory and he would find another story for me to paint. And in this sort of way, across the span of, um, well, some years, beginning in 2005, I believe, 2003, 2005, after 9-11, up until about 2015, we collected a series of 24 stories. That's a long answer, but um, I hope that does answer it. That's the perfect answer. Mm -hmm. uh the listeners cannot look at your book the way no. I can. Yeah. So they do not see those 24 wonderful Thank paintings you. of your father's different stories. Yes. Uh, one page, one facing page is his story in words. And the opposite page is the painting of the story. Yes. And 
this is what you achieved together. Mm -hmm. Yes. Do you think that you might someday continue this tradition and like your father, tell your stories to your children? Ah, oh, what a question. Um, okay, one major, major problem with that is that I don't have children. Uh, my paintings are my children. Um, okay, so there's a quick answer to that. But what I do love about that, I have nieces and a nephew. And, um, you know, the family is growing. The family will continue, um, inshallah, to the next generation. And I think that's a really beautiful idea of yours. It would be so wonderful to continue that tradition. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do have stories to tell. I mean, I never really thought about my life being that important or different, but, um, you know, living through a couple of different wars and evacuations, good times, bad times, there are definitely things to, to talk about. And um, so I love that idea of, of passing along to a third generation um, of the family uh, more stories and maybe more contemporary stories. And yes, you're right, we're now in America, we're not living in the Middle East, yet we, we still have our um, community, our extended family. And, um, uh, you know, this is an important, um, as I said in the beginning, an important tradition of education that you don't get in a school. And the paintings would not be like the paintings in stories my father told me. No. They would be in different settings, in yeah. different places. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The people would be wearing different clothing. <laughs> yes. And it would give you a completely new field. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it would help the listener if you could tell us a little about your family's geographic background. Okay. Um, well, I, my father was born um, in Damascus, Syria. Damascus is the capital of Syria. And he was born under the French mandate. And, um, and he was there for several years. His father, Jiddu, my grandfather, Jiddu is the Arabic word for grandfather. Um, Jiddu was in Damascus um, working. And so he and my grandmother were there. And, uh, and my father has two sisters. They lost two um, in, the, in the pandemic, the flu pandemic, two children. Um, Tata lost two children. Which um, pandemic was that? I believe the flu. No, I mean, which year was that? Which year was that? It wasn't our pandemic, was it? It wasn't the current pandemic, no. If that's, are, are you talking about the current pandemic? No, I'm talking about the one that, in which two children died. Correct. No, that was, that was the, the, the flu. That was, when was that? That was in 19... That, was that 1918? 
Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So your family has experienced two pandemics. <laughs> yeah, two pandemics, several wars. Um, yeah, and a lot of moving around. So, so now we're in Damascus. Now we're in Damascus, and uh, Daddy was there for his early childhood, so for several years. And under that time, you know, there were no borders. So it was called the Big Syria, Le Grand Syrie in French, the Big Syria. Um, and it encompassed uh, Lebanon and Jordan, I believe, Palestine. There were no borders. So people crossed back and forth. And, and um, they didn't, like my father would say, I'm from Syria, I'm from Lebanon, because it was kind of all one, one same thing. And so a little bit later in his uh, young adulthood, um, they moved to Lebanon and up in the mountains, and the it was Moliban, Mount Lebanon. It was actually like a mountain if you look at the map. And they were not in Beirut, the capital, but they were up in the mountains. Um, and he, um, he finished his schooling there uh, in a British school in Sidon, in, up in the mountains. And, um, and then, you know, like a lot of people of that time that would have been now um, after World War II, uh, that daddy um, and his family, my, my grandmother and my father and one of my aunts were able to receive passage to immigrate to America. Um, and so, that was in 1946, and my father would have been around 18 years old. Was um, it difficult for them to get permission to emigrate to America? You know, that's a good question. I don't, I don't exactly know. I think it took a long time. Now, what those reasons were, um, I'm not exactly sure, but I think I'm going to ask my father that if he would still remember what was difficult. And I can't imagine, you know, we just talked about having children. I do not have any children. So I cannot imagine being put in this particular um, situation, which I'm going to tell you um, about right now, is that when, uh, when the ship came, it was a ship called the Vulcania. And this was an Italian ship that the Americans had seized during World War II and repatriated to the American flag. And that is the ship that went around picking up people that had received passage to come to America from Palestine and Syria and Lebanon and Jordan. And they had a cutoff of the age. You couldn't be above a certain age. And so my grandmother, my teta, having two daughters and my father took one of her daughters and my father and the other, <laughs> the other daughter, my other aunt remained there because she was over the age that the ship would accept. And till today, she remains in Jordan. She's in Jordan. She never came to America uh, to live here like my Aunt Mary and my father did. And 
much later on, I learned about that. And um, I've never directly talked with my father about that um, because it seems painful. And as I said, I'm not a mother, but I just cannot imagine leaving, leaving one of my children behind. I, I don't know. I, I, I wish my grandmother was still alive and whether people did things like that all the time, look, they're doing that right now, right? Crossing borders, you know, leaving their children, sending their children a, 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 along to find a better life. You know, it's, it's the circle of life. It keeps happening and we're experiencing it right now, but it's so interesting um, uh, to think that these decisions that people make in hopes of a better life for their family and their children. Yeah. The experience of immigration that seems to be sweeping across the entire world. Yeah. Is is making these decisions and these family stories mm -hmm. and these emotional dilemmas. Yeah. So vivid to us. Mm -hmm. We hear it on the BBC. We hear it on news broadcasts. We he read it in every newspaper. Mm -hmm. We are not far away from any of this now. Oh, I love that point that you're making because you know what's happened. Uh, you know my background as an Arab American and my, my um, incredible empathy with uh, the massive displacement in Syria. 13 million people in, in, the sh in this short of a span of time. Well, you know, everyone was looking at them, Europe, this country, et cetera, as the other. And to your point, your beautiful point that you were right, this is touching all of us and we are one step away. It's just luck that we are not, you know, bundling up with one suitcase and, and crossing borders in hopes of escaping bombs or a better life or poverty or violence, you know, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's touching all of us and we, we can't uh, spread our elbows too far without bumping into that. And so we need to reappraise that, 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 that way of thinking that they are other or they are refugees or they are immigrants, you know? So I love that observation. We are in 2020 and 1920 is now a century in the past. Yeah. But in 1920, 1910, 1900, yeah. there were thousands upon thousands upon mm -hmm. thousands arriving with one suitcase. Right. From That's... everywhere. Right. Who now call themselves, we're the real Americans. <laughs> and what about those suitcases? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, when we when we first put this uh, this exhibition up, like I said, it was after 9-11. And this where was this? Excuse me for interrupting. Where was this exhibition? Uh, the exhibition was in, in um, D.C., in Washington, D.C. At what gallery? A gallery called Gallery Al-Quds, which and, means Jerusalem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is the uh, subject matter that Gallery Al-Quds 
specializes in? Is there well, any? Well, they are uh, an, an, a platform for dialogue on Palestine and the issues um, that surround Palestine. So they're an educational branch, uh, research, writing, um, contemporary issues, but they also have a gallery uh, component there as well. And I I'm gonna be having a show opening next month, I think they're a sort of a retrospective, um, even though I'm a little bit young for that kind of a thing, but still. Um, and so, it's a, it's a further extension of, of a dialogue that uh, a lot of times Westerners don't come across. And so, of course, through the arts, as you know, it's, it's the way to connect people to people and, and leave the politics and misunderstandings and stereotypes behind, you know? Yes. Our listeners are everywhere. Right. And I am sure that there are people in the DC area who would want to attend your next exhibition. So we Thank can you. talk about that okay. uh, a little later on Sure. for the information. Thank you. I have a question now about your artwork, uh -huh. which is the outstanding narrator in this book. <laughs> Each picture is so powerful a voice mm -hmm. because the details are so rich mm -hmm. and so full in nuance. Mm -hmm. Tell us how your art teaches people about the world. Oh my goodness. Wow. Um, that That's really... Um so lovely to think that my art could teach the world something. Um, I hope, um, let's put it this way. Um, I, I just did an interview a couple of days ago for, I don't know, I think it was PBS. And they asked me, what did I want from my artwork? What, what was I hoping for as an artist? What kind of was like my objective? if you will. And I think what I would like to do, and, and I have grown into this aspiration with my work over the years. I didn't just start out as an artist and say, this is what I want. But you know, as you know, events, current events uh, shape us and push us towards some doors that we may not open. And after 9-11 and after our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and things that have happened and certainly the Arab Spring and the revolutions and so on, you know, they change, they change you as an artist. They change the way you want to document things and they change your message. And what I have learned um, from being an artist and, and being a voice for things, say, in the past, perhaps, as stories my father told me, or for contemporary issues as an immigration and war and displacement, I think what I hope is to create something that's aesthetically attractive to look at, but once you are there, once I've captured you, with my pattern, with my color, um, with my detail, as you say, 
what I want is for you to hear what I'm saying behind that, or in the case of this book, what my father is saying behind those stories, because that's where you get a dialogue. That is where you create empathy. That is where you begin to lessen the idea of us and them. That's where you cross those bridges and get a global, a global, um, let's even put respect. It doesn't even have to be understanding but just a little respect for one another. I think that one of the great powers in your art is that once you look at it, you cannot look away from it. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I am thinking about another, a great painting. Yeah. Guernica. Of course that no one who's ever seen it can look away from it again. Right, right. And it was a huge message. Right. The world that was unaware of what was happening in Spain. Mm -hmm. I recently read of an exchange between its painter, Picasso, and a German, Yes, a uh, German who was living. Oh, who was it? Yes, it was, a, I believe, a military official. Well, then, had, then maybe I learned about it through you. Why don't you yeah. tell it? Why don't you tell it? Yeah, no, that's, I, I mean, I love that you're bringing that up. And um, it certainly is very apt. Uh, so the, the anecdote, and it's true, by the way, the anecdote uh, goes in 1935 when Picasso had painted this seminal painting, as you said, Guernica, really, really showing the horrors, the horrors of the Spanish Civil War and, and the destruction and, and hell of that. So it was still in a studio. It's a large uh, painting and evidently a uh, German official uh, came in and he had heard about this painting. And so he wanted to meet Picasso and see the painting and so on and so forth. So he, he comes to Picasso's studio and he, he sees the painting and he looks at Picasso and he said, ah, so you're the one who created this. And Picasso looked at him and said, no, you're the one who did that. And it's the idea of Picasso is mirror yes i mean picasso didn't create that war i mean it's it's i think it's such a moment of of you know i i we paint we we do as an artist we we document you know we we try and and create things um in such a way to preserve the history to preserve the moment to preserve what's happening around us for the future and, and, you know, the point of that is so that we learn. But, but have we learned from Guernica? We obviously have not. I mean, you know, but it's there. It's there in case people want to take the lessons. But I'm so grateful that you brought that up. I think about that quite a bit. What we learn is that art plays an essential role in life. Yes. It and we cannot be human 
without art speaking to us. That's right. That's right. And you can't, you know, um, what art manages to do is, is have a different dialogue. Art creates a different narrative. Art is another way of storytelling, which is in a counterbalance to say negativity that you hear about the Arab world or misconceptions. Art, art, art is that counterbalance, I think. Art is that other narrative that we need to look at. I would like to speak a little about some of the paintings in stories my father told me. I would like to speak about them or ask you some questions. Sure. Are all the stories from your father's time in Damascus as a little boy or when they were in the mountain in well, Lebanon? Okay, well, it's both, they're both. So there are some stories that are from his younger childhood. Um, and then there are, say, you know, um, the gypsy and the dancing bear and the Sandu al-Furji, which is like the show box, which is where a peddler would come and he has really, he's like a little mini cinema. You know, it was before TV or the movies and he would have a scroll and the, the moving images would go through the scroll and you would pay him a few little change in your pocket and you would sit and he would chant what the story was. And, um, and you would peek through these little holes and the box was decorated and so on. That was from Damascus. The milk, the halab, the, the, the man, the peddler who brought the, the milk, the, the goats to be milked for fresh milk, that was also in Damascus. And then later on, um, we have stories from Lebanon, traditions and, and uh, celebrations that they did. Um, but, you know, a lot of that, you know, they, they, they're all over, but there are stories from both times mm -hmm. of his life. Mm -hmm. and as you were pointing out, this was a time before borders. Correct. Like animals who just wander around to where the, <laughs> the next thing to eat is. Right. People right. were not um, restricted. Restricted. And it was the land itself that said, you can live here or you cannot live here or you can feed your flocks here or you cannot feed your flocks here. I would. Right wonder if you would uh, kindly tell us some of the subjects of the paintings and stories my father told me. So people who are not looking at the book and the listeners can, can imagine at least, oh, there's this, this is one of the subjects. This is one of the subjects. Okay. Uh, I particularly like the uh, fire sentinels. The bonfires. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I love the way you describe it. Um, yeah. That's a. That is one of a lot of people's very favorite paintings of mine. And then they learn about that story. But 
in Arabic, that story is, uh, is called Eid al-Salib, which means Feast of the Cross. And the, the tradition, um, it, it becomes a, um, a celebration. It's celebrated every year all over the Middle East. And so what, what basically I'm depicting, as you say, with these sentinels, these mountains and um, the people facing and the bonfires facing the moon. So, so after converting to Christianity, St. Helena, and she was the mother of Emperor Constantine, she went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to find the cross that was used in the crucifixion. And then she stationed groups of believers on, on the hilltops between Constantinople and Jerusalem. And when she found the cross, she lit a bonfire as a signal, which was then passed to Constantine with bonfires on all the hills. So on the night of the Feast of the Cross in Lebanon, huge bonfires illuminate the villages there would be competitions, my father would say, to see who could have the largest fire and the piles of wood that were, you know, hoarded over the year would disappear because little boys would steal it to enhance theirs. And then the bonfires would die, die down and most people went home. The boys and the men, they would jump over the fires to see if they could, you know, outdo the one another. And they skipped and the, the younger ones were too scared to jump over the, the, the bonfires, but they promised that when they get bigger and stronger, they would do it next year. And this is a beautiful celebration um, that is every year um, about finding the cross and the way they, they communicated was lighting bonfires on the hilltops or so that's the, uh, that's the tradition. So, and Perhaps we could say something to explain to people who are not aware that Christianity exists in the Middle East mm -hmm. uh, among people who are uh, not, uh, would not necessarily be, be considered uh, Christians. Mm -hmm. They might be automatically considered Muslim. Mm -hmm. And you... Talk to me a little about that. Of course. Um, yeah, sure. That is a common misconception. And uh, my father is actually Greek Orthodox. And there is a, a fairly sizable community. Um, they originated in Damascus, in Syria. So most of the ones that you have now in Lebanon, their families came from from Damascus, and they, um, they're very open-minded. Um, they allow intermarriage. So in my father's family, I've asked him directly about this, in my father's family, the Zareb family, they have many different religions that are married in into uh, the Greek Orthodox uh, community there. So we have Catholic, we have Maronite, we have, um, we have Muslim, we have both Sunni and Shiite Muslim, uh, but my father's immediate family are Greek Orthodox. 
and they they believed in the czar when he was in power. Um, and there's one story in here that reflects that and the fall of him. Um, but yes, Greek Orthodox. So the traditions, Palm Sunday, um, they fall for the Greek Greek calendar there. So um, they, they celebrate what we call it. We grew up celebrating Greek Easter, which is a little bit different than than Christian. I mean, it's Christian, but you know what I'm saying? It falls on a different day. Yes, it's the um, the Orthodox calendar. Yes. Yes. As opposed to the Roman calendar. Yes, yes. You know better than me on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I learned. Yeah. And isn't this an example of a kind of open-minded tolerance that we could use more of in our own country? Oh, 100%, 100%. I mean, um, I, I so, I, I wish that. And the way that I grew up in my family was um, very open-minded and to not be judgmental and to be accepting and anyone was welcome at the dinner table. Uh, you open your doors and your heart to them. It didn't matter who they were. Um, and that is the way that I grew up. And my father is, is, is known, and the family actually, um, is known for being hospitable. Um, so that whoever came to their home could receive food and, and a shelter and uh, hospitality and courteousness, and they value it very, very much. I mean, it's something that um, they put their reputation on and um, to really value the sense of hospitality. And uh, I, I agree, we, we, could all, we could all use more of it. I am thinking again about immigration because this is such a part of your father. Yeah. Uh, do you think that you would ever write a book, a book with words about your family's search for safety across those many countries? Or do you think that your art is the better vehicle for that? I don't know. I, I have a I have a feeling that my art um, my art can narrate it better. Um, I'm currently working on a story. I have been working on this series over about five years now. I think I talked to you a little bit about it, the Syrian migration series. And in that series, I have a very short description, a short narrative that accompanies each of the paintings um, that, that follow the timeline of the uprisings and the revolutions 10 years ago, almost to the week here and creating the massive immigration um, displacement um, of the war in Syria. Um, I think the narrative there is very important. Um, the image, of course, is very important. But I do think there that the word, like here in the stories my father told me, the words somehow um, anchor, anchor the idea or the thought. And they're another entryway. Let's put it that way. They're another entryway into the painting. Um, it's like a title. I really think hard about my titles because, you know, 
fine abstract, fine this, I, I get it. But I, I want you to kind of get what I'm doing. I want you to hear what I'm trying to say to you, you know, because it gets lost. And if, if I can help you get there, I'd rather help you than turn you away. You know, I think that's a long about answer to your question, but. Um, it's a perfect answer. <laughs> Thank you. What, what I'm thinking is because your book is visual yeah. and, it, and it would be, it would be a travesty for people to simply look at your images yeah. on a screen. Yet, if someone were to read mm-hmm. one of the descriptions your father wrote yeah. to another person or to read it on the radio, yeah. it would draw people yeah. to, to desire to see the art. Yes, yes. So sometimes words can bring people to pictures. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's, and vice versa, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I think about words all the time. I'm always taking notes. I, I, I listen, I read, I, 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 oh, I'm so grateful to people who have a way with words or poems or writers. Um, I think they're definitely hand in hand there and, and we help each other. I, I, I really, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. A book that is as beautiful as this book should be held in the hands. <laughs> and I am so happy that Kuhn uh, Press and you found each other. Me too, me too. So now um, I have a question about your own family. Okay. Uh, How how do you define your family here in America? Well, I have, um, of course, my parents, um, both are still living. I'm knocking on wood, um, audience, if you can hear me. Um, That keeps away the evil eye. Um, and I have an older brother and two sisters that are younger and they have children, as I mentioned, they're married and have children. Um, I do not, I am married. Um, I chose not to have children because I really wanted to concentrate on my paintings. And, um, so here in America, uh, my family, like a good Arab family is kind of all in one place. And our extended family is across the world. We have much, we have many family in, um, in Lebanon, and as I said, in Jordan as well, and Syria till now, um, which we did get to see when I finally got to go back in 2010 before the Arab Spring began. Um, so several of them have died since that time. And um, so I'm grateful that we got to see them then, but. We have family, the, you know, the extended family in America as well there. Who is your family in Lebanon? Who is my family in Lebanon? We have, uh, we have aunts, we have um, uncles, we have um, cousins. Uh, you know, everyone is all kind of related in some regard or another. Um, Across generations. Across generations, yes, across generations. So 
Um, and, and I say also in Jordan too, my cousins are there, my aunt is there, my uncle has since died. And so, um, yeah, it's an extended, extended family. Um, and that can go back and back. There is a writer uh, with our last name, with my father's last name. There, in, there is an artist who is sort of a folkloric painter, a self-taught art artist that um, has also my father's name, who's long dead now, but, uh, you know, a very similar weirdly style to my own, a sort of naivete style and flat pattern color um, and so the family, the Zreb family is a, is a large family, is a large family. Mm -hmm. I believe that you described your style of art as coming from the great Middle East, um, the Islamic concept uh -huh. of art. Yeah. Can you, you mean, talk a little about that? You mean, are you like, kind of saying like miniature and and that sort of that no sort of, i mean um the two dimension yeah 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 i definitely i mean i have been asked this and i've learned to sort of formulate an answer as best as i can because you never are quite sure how your style um develops and um, so I, growing up in the Arab world, um, in Iraq, in Kuwait, in Lebanon, a few different times, um, you know, you're surrounded by the light. You are surrounded by the carpets. You are surrounded by ceramics and tiles and architecture and domes and stripes and patterns and donkeys and you know, anything you can envision is, is, is around you and all around. And my parents uh, ha collected some great, amazing uh, art from uh, Iraq and Baghdad. And that's what I grew up with on my walls and sculpture and painting. So this was part of my life. I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by, you know, this beauty. And as you mentioned, this sort of Islamic and that doesn't mean religion. It means Islam in a broader sense, you know, countries that maybe are majority Muslim, but it doesn't necessarily mean religion. And um, this flattened two-dimensional pattern, geometric, also floral motifs that form so much of their work, uh, the beauty, the beauty um, in their, in their, um, in their, Oh, like carpets. Yes, they're carpets. All of that. And architecture. And the architecture. And you just grow up with that. You just are surrounded by it. And it's like, I don't know, you absorb it. And then the kind of paint that I love to use that I, I you know, learned how to use lends itself to that. So I, I get these beautiful colors. I can control the paint in this flat way that I like to use it with no brush strokes. And to create this detail and the purity of the color, um, I love to do that. And so they really work together very, very well. And um, so that flattened out abstract also for me creates a certain amount of universality. Yeah, we're talking about Arab 
my background uh, as an Arab American and my father, but you know, the, the simplicity and the universality also goes, goes beyond the Middle East, you know? It's like you can identify as well. In English speakers still need to learn uh, a little better the meaning of Muslim as an adjective, Islamic as an adjective. Mm -hmm. uh, these words have not been as common as other ethnic descriptors. So I'm glad that you mentioned that yourself. Yeah. And uh, I am hoping that the Syrian immigration series you referred to earlier uh -huh. might turn out to be your next project. Well, inshallah, inshallah, God willing, as the Arabs say, um, and there again, it doesn't have to do anything with religion. It's just like, you know, they just say God willing. Um, but I would love that to happen. And um, I think it would be an incredible journey um, to have that happen. As I said, the journey isn't over there. Um, we are still waiting to see what's the outcome. And we may never, you know, because these tragedies carry to the generations after you, you know, you, you live with them good or bad, and they carry through the damage and the, the hope is all intertwined, which we carry, right? Like our suitcase, uh, we, carry, we carry these stories. And I, I just feel fortunate. I feel so fortunate that my father, uh, his ability to remember, his ability to, to tell me, to be able to tell us what his childhood was like, what his experiences were like, that I could see them and capture them. And, and, you know, when I ask him about his job, for instance, and what, you know, he will, he will refer to these stories that this is who I am. This, this is, this is my legacy. You know, that is a wonderful image that we can take with us. Thank can you. you Tell us now about the exhibit that you referred to earlier on, uh, the exhibit that's coming up, mm -hmm. what it will be, when it will be, and where it will be. Okay, thank you so much. That's very gracious of you. Um, it is in Washington, D.C. I am, this is where my studio and I live here. Uh, it's going to be at Galleria Kutz, which is also here in town. How do you and, spell that? Oh, uh, uh, so... Uh, a A L and then A L a separate word and then in Arabic it's Uts, but it's hard to say. So it's spelled Q U D like uh, D S and means Jerusalem, actually. And so, um, so there there are two. And there's doesn't ha it doesn't have to do with any religion or what have you. Um, and so it's, it's much, it's secular and much more broad, but the, the show that the curator wants to do with me is, sorry about that, is um, a show called Looking Back, Looking Forward. And um, 
she has uh, termed it a sort of retrospective and um, some of my earlier work um, until my more recent series of migration series with the um, uh, Syrian uh, displacement. And so it should be very interesting and um, give people a chance to see how I've kind of evolved as an artist. We will have some of these stories from my father told me. It certainly was an important part of my career as well. And, um, you know, got what a lot. The I'm sorry. Yeah, the dates, what will the, the date, date be? The date, I believe, is opening on um, April, I want to say April 2nd, I think the week before Easter, I believe, and it will run until, I believe, the, um, uh, the first week in May. Oh, that's wonderful. And yeah. Is there a second exhibit, you said? Yes, there is a ex second exhibit opening at um, the Watergate Gallery, which will sort of come right on the heels of the uh, this exhibit coming up. And that's um, really a reflective exhibit. It's all new work on my part. It'll be a two-person show, a sculptor and myself, considered mostly a painter me. Um, and so that is um, uh, out, uh, inside looking out. And it's uh, my, um, my reflections on this past year of confinement uh, of the pandemic that we've all gone through and how we've interpreted as two artists, him sculpture, a sculptor and me a, a painter. Um, so that is going to be opening up uh, April 24th and running, I believe, until um, the beginning of June. The, that's wonderful information. Thank you. For those of us who are located in the DC area. Yeah. And for those of us who are not, we will pray that travel <laughs> restrictions will make it possible so we can see your artwork there. Thank you. I'll say inshallah again. Thank you. So, Helen, you've given us so much of your time and we are so grateful because what we have learned is extraordinary. Thank you. So I would like to thank you once more for this wonderful talk about stories my father told me by Helen Sukheb and Ilia Sukheb which was published by Kuhn Press in 2020. Helen, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. It's been my honor to be sure, Valerie. Thank you so much. I appreciate your interest. I really, really do. Thank you. Thank you for listening to New Books in Art and New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.